Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, quite possibly the longest title podcast of the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Chad Velasic. Today, we'll be talking to Jenny Reardon about her new book, The Postgenomic Condition, Ethics, Justice, and Knowledge After the Genome. It is a fascinating and consequential book, which should be appealing to a rather wide audience in and outside of STS. It is a book that touches on issues of democratizing science, intensifying automation, debates on privacy and and consent, racism, diversity, and more, which is timely due to increased public debates, most recently David Reich's New York Times opinion piece on genetics and race, and the BuzzFeed open letter in response to Reich, co-written by Jenny Reardon herself. So let us begin. Jenny Reardon, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chad. So um, before we get to the book, uh, I would like to hear a little bit about yourself. So if you could maybe talk a little bit about um, your your history in the field and, and how you came to um, be interested in genomics. Yeah, well, I actually started out as a um, biologist. Uh, I was sequencing DNA when it was still pouring hot liquid between two plates of glass back in the early 1990s, I was working in a molecular evolutionary laboratory. Um, but I always had had broader interests. Um, I, have a f- I had a father who was a Jesuit priest um, who was always posing large questions. Um, I also uh, was very interested in politics and was a double major in uh, political science as an undergraduate. Um, and so I was always looking for ways to bridge my interest in biology and my interest in politics. And this project came along called the Human Genome Diversity Project. And I read about it in the pages of Science Magazine while I was sequencing DNA. You have to wait while these things run out. Um, and so I was flipping through, the, mm-hmm. through science. I read about this project that promised to bring the sciences together with humanities. I thought, great, this is what I'm going to do. I applied to go to grad school to work with Mary Claire King, who... who was at Berkeley at the time, and he was one of the proposers of that project. Um, But then I was told about science and technology studies, actually, by one of my undergraduate advisors at the University of Kansas. And I thought, once again, great, this gives me a chance to, you know, bridge my interests. And so I was at this kind of junction in life where I had to make a rather large and consequential decision about whether or not I was going to go off and do molecular biology, or whether or not I was going to take this big leap into this unknown field. It was just starting at the time. I think Cornell had just gotten its National Foundation grant to start science technology studies. Um, And so I had to make a decision. And at the end of the day, I actually decided to, quote unquote, leave science um, to do science technology studies. But I've never really ever wanted to, to leave. And so I've always been someone who's tried to bridge this gap between um, the sciences and the critical studies of science. So I've always, I've studied genomics now for 27 years, but, you know, first as someone who is doing it as, you know, in the laboratory. And then as someone trained to study the, the social, cultural, political dimensions of it. So that's how I, that's how I got into genomics. So short version of a very long story. Yes, I'm sure. Um, and you do touch upon some of that in the book, um, in particular, um, your work with genomics. And um, on, on that point, I was, I was wondering if you could uh, talk then a little bit about how you came to work on this specific book and how you, because obviously there's, there's a lot of interviews here. So uh-huh. how did you maintain those connect? Did you maintain those connections? Did you make new ones? That sort of thing. Yeah. So, um, so some folks might know that I, I wrote a first book called race to the, to the finish identity govern governance in an age of genomics. And that was actually a 
ethnography of this project I just mentioned, the Human Genome Diversity Project. And so I, you know, I went from someone who was going to be a student working on the Human Genome Diversity Project as a, you know, lab scientist to someone who interviewed all the the folks involved, um, including many of the the population geneticists and biological anthropologists involved. Early on, my ability to conduct those interviews, I remember being asked by um, Luca Cavalli Sforza, uh, one of the founders of human population genetics, he said to me, are you a friend or a foe? <laughs> I was like, uh, hmm. I wonder what the answer to that should be. Um, but it was clear that, um, you know, because the, the project had come under attack, it, uh, um, some people will know that it was accused of being a racist uh, colonialist project. And so a lot of the scientists were, were quite, you know, concerned that, you know, about how they were going to be represented. And I think, you know, early on, I gained trust amongst many um, working scientists because I had that background. And I, you know, and also that I had this genuine interest in the project and had almost become a grad student working on it. And so the first book helped me build a lot of networks. And I think the first book, um, you know, was, was widely considered a, a fair book, a book that took a very controversial topic and helped people to understand why it was controversial. Um, you know, race and science is a hugely contentious issue. One thing I like to, to say is, you know, no biologist goes into biology to start the next generation of racism. Um, the Human Genome Diversity Project was, was proposed by, you know, model citizen science scientists. These were Mary Claire King, who had helped the um, the, the Abuelas de la Plaza de Mayo, um, which uh, were the grandmothers who were trying to find their, their grandchildren, um, the who were the, the uh, children of the disappeared um, during, during the uh, dictatorship um, in Argentina. And, um, and so, you know, she early on had dedicated her life to merging uh, questions of science with questions of social justice, which was part of the reason why I wanted to work with her. But she had helped propose a project that then was accused of being racist and, and colonialist. Um, and I myself was going to work on that project. So I was very, you know, I think, um, empathetic and late to um, the problem. Um, and I think it's through that process, I build up huge networks and on the basis of that, was able to move into the second book. And the second book, I'm not sure if we've gotten to this part of the interview yet, but where that came from and what I was trying to do with that, you know, after I finished a book on the Human Genome Diversity Project, which had been widely seen as a, you know, a failure, what you ought not to do, you know, what can we learn from this, what, what we shouldn't do. And I was really looking for uh, for a while, I said, I'm just I'm not writing a book. I'm looking at how can we do better genomics? Um, how, how can we take the lessons learned from the diversity project and create a better science, you know, a science that does a better job of achieving the goals that these, these proposers of the diversity project had, which was to, um, do science in the service of, of fighting racism, uh, to furthering the causes of social justice. And so every case in this book was chosen because I was inspired by some ele element of it originally. Um, I, I do really believe what Donna Haraway has said, which is, you know, you should really work on things that at some level you really care about um, because it can be so easy just to become a critic. Um, and so that's why I chose the cases in the book. Um, as you get into the details of any, of any project, of any case, um, you hit complexities as I did in this book. And I think what I'm always trying to do is to plumb the depths of things with, even when they move into really controversial, very difficult to talk about areas, which the topics in this book do while keeping people in the room with me, while keeping people engaged. So, you know, one of the the highest compliments that I get ever is when um, somebody who I've interviewed and I've taken a critical stance on it says, you know, this was you 
you know, at some level it was hard to read, but I really appreciated it. You know, I think you were, and, and I was, you know, on many occasions, you know, in the writing, in the various um, pieces of writing I've done, including with this book as well. Um, so I'm trying to really allow people to explore the difficulty, to be with the difficulty, to, as Donna Haraway puts it, stay with the trouble. Um, and in the interest of making a better world, a better science. And that's what this, this book was really about. In terms of the, moving on to the, uh, to the actual content of the book, which you um, started to talk about here a little bit, um, if we could talk a little bit about how'd you, how'd you come up with, with this uh, concept of the post-genomic condition? What was your idea in this, in this introduction? I mean, you talk about um, you know, some, some themes that we read throughout the book, like genomic liberalism, for example, and uh, your engagement, especially with uh, Hannah Arendt. So um, if you could speak a little bit about that, please. Yeah, no. Um, so for a long time, as I said, this was, first of all, A, it was not a book. And then once it became clear that it was a book, I had no title for it. And then I, I, I finally someday this came to me, the post-genomic condition, and it just really, for me, helped hold together what the book was about. So it was a riff on Hannah Arendt's The Human Condition, Leotard's The Postmodern Condition. It was a reference to, I was looking at the era after the sequencing of the genome. So I was looking at the, t the decade after the sequencing of the genome. So it's one level, it's about an epic, one decade after this, the sequencing of the human genome. So post the human genome project, which some, some scientists actually do refer to as the post-genomic era. But also a way of referring to that that brings the, the, me and the reader into the theoretical domain that I'm working in. So Hannah Arendt, you know, famously was writing that book in the wake of two. And her question was, you know, at the center of her work was the question of why didn't the German people judge uh, Hitler and how can we judge how can we speak? How can we speak that which we do? It's a very simple formulation she has in the human, human condition, which is how do we speak that which we do? And it really, um, for me, was the hook for this book. How do we speak these very highly complex techno-scientific things that we do in a manner that makes them available for speech by which Arendt meant not mere talk. You know, she put it, talk is, you know, razzle-dazzle, you know, fooling a foe. Um, uh, it isn't meant to really communicate in the sense of creating a communal life, in the sense of trying to make a connection with another, in the sense of trying to reach across difference in order to live collectively. Whereas for her speech is that critical skill to do those things, to connect with another across often great differences in order that we might live together in some kind of uh, peaceful coexistence. So how do we speak the condition of living in a moment where we're mediating our lives through these very high-tech um, objects like genomes? How am I, you know, for, for, for years, it's been frustrating to me. You know, I was a young person who very early on started sequencing DNA. And there's a way in which that put me on a pedestal, you know, like, oh, you know, you must be really smart. You're, you're doing genomics. And I guess in this book, I wanted to resist that and say, this is a thing in the world. It's a thing that we are in that kind of um, way that Bruno Latour has taught us to think about um, by referencing a, an etymology that actually Heidegger pointed out, which is that thing comes from the, from the old Norse ding, which means, again, parliaments, the, the very first parliament, um, the Icelandic parliament is called the all thing. So a thing is a matter of concern around which we gather. It's material at the same time, the only way that things become material is through us caring about them. There would be no genomes in the world if, you know, there weren't 
people who cared and were concerned about uh, about creating, you know, all this genomic sequence. Um, so, in a world where these are the the things, the matters that we're gathering around, the matters that we're putting billions of dollars into, them, not just money, but our care and concern. Um, how do we speak about um, what we're doing as we make genomes? Uh, an object with which we're making decisions about our health, an object which we're, which we're making decisions about who can be in a country and not in a country, who can cross a border, decisions about how we're going to conduct our criminal justice system. How do we speak about those things? So that's Arendt, um, and that's the, you know, there's a lot more, and I engage with Arendt throughout the book. You know, Leotard raises, for, for Leotard, um, he's writing at a time when mainframe computers are just coming um, uh, online, and he's concerned about the automation of, of, of thinking. And when thinking moves from the training of a mind to the product of an automatic process that can be easily commodified, Leotard raises this question of what happens to knowledge in that moment. Um, will it lose its ability to ground truth and justice. And genomics is many things, but one of the things that it is is the automation of, uh, it, it runs by a lot of automated machines. Um, there's a, a lot of it is machine learning, a lot of it is not human beings doing the analysis, but algorithms, coding. It's exactly this, this, this bit that Leotard was talking about, the automation of quote-unquote thinking. And it's certainly become commodified. Um, there, the, a billion dollars were spent sequencing the human gene for the machines only for sequencing the human genome. Countless billions have been spent on those machines since. The reagents are also extremely expensive. Um, it's a huge growth area. There's been venture capital, lots of venture capital going into this area. It's a prime um, financial area of financial investment. So those are the those are why I that's why I chose Leotard and Arendt because they help us hone in on the big questions that really matter in the space of genomics. I wasn't interested in writing another book where we talked about you know the ethical, legal, social implications of genomics. I was interested in really the big questions about knowledge, about governance, about what it means, what are the conditions of collective life in a moment where a genome has become a thing, a matter of concern. Yeah, it's it's interesting because um, you talk to so many different people, um, you know, who who, as you said, you know, care about the genome, right, in various ways, or in certain cases, you know, they they don't really seem to care. They have other concerns, uh, but that factors into the development of of genomics itself. So you, for this book, you you see, you travel to many places. You talk to, you know, not just not just the scientists, but uh, activists and, and entrepreneurs and, and lawyers. And I think the, uh, the, so in the second chapter, you get into more of the, and more of the field work. Uh, of course, as you mentioned, Arendt and, and Leotard are, are discussed throughout, but you, um, you start getting into more, more of the field sites and talking about some of these issues over, uh, well, early on over sharing and over, um, what kind of economy is is genomics, right? So, could you speak a bit about that and, and maybe some of the differences between Venter and, and Sulston? Yeah. So, um, just to give a little bit more of a of the framework for the book too, the one piece I haven't talked about is the at one level this book is also just an ethnography of efforts to democratize um, genomics. And also the reason why um, democratization became a buzzword, a, a central. I, I, to genomics and, and, and the first chapter that you're referring to, um, it's at the center of the beginning of the story, which I'll talk about in a minute, um, was that it raised all these anxieties the field did. Was genomics going to issue, uh, uh, was it going to usher in a new era of scientific racism? Was it going to usher in uh, a new era of the corporatization of science? Was this about totalitarianism on the one side or corporate control on the other? 
And the response to that was to say, no, it's not going to be that. It's going to be of and for and by the people. So liberal democratic practices and principles were central to genomics in the very beginning, including, and, and the book steps the reader through different liberal democratic concepts that became salient um, at different points in this decade I'm looking at. So at the very beginning, information is the central liberal democratic concept. The idea that a liberal democracy proceeds when citizens have the information they need to make decisions. So access to information, free flow of information has been a core value of democratic um, societies. And this shaped the genome very early on, the, the, the sequencing of the Human Genome Project. Many people will know the story of Craig Venter, um, the, you know, the much maligned uh, capitalist scientist, or so this is the representation of him, um, who famously said, I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to do this on my own. He was able to attract venture capital uh, investments and started a company called Solera and was in a race to sequence the human genome with the, the public effort. Um, and so in the, in the first chapter, I, I, I actually, I retell this story and I say that that's a little bit of a fairy tale, you know, account what happened here. Yes, there was a um, uh, this this struggle between venture and you know the private and the and the public effort, um, but you know so and the public effort you mentioned Solston. So the public effort was led by John Solston, um, an amazing scientist who started his career working on C. elegans, the uh, the model organism, the worm, um, and mapped the cell fate of every cell in the worm. And that became the, uh, this, this creating a map, you know, then moved into uh, DNA, from cells to DNA. And John Sulston traveled along with that development. And he, so he was the leader on, for, for the British side. And then on the United States side, you had um, Francis Collins, who now is the head of the NIH. But John Sulston really was the one who spearheaded the, um, or was the spokesperson for the, the human genome ought to be our common heritage, should be out in the open. Craig Venter should not patent it. But even John Solston um, is, writes in his autobiography, which I, I begin this book with, talks about how he himself considered uh, uh, taking corporate money and going the private route as well. Um, and even Craig Venter, out, Venter offered him a job at one point, which he considered. And the point that I try to make is that every scientist in this domain felt the pressure to go to the to do this as in a, in a on a private route because the amount of money needed to uh, to purchase the machines needed to develop the machines far exceeded what governments could provide. So one of the main things that happens with genomics is that you introduce into the life sciences a form of knowing life that requires huge amounts of capital that pressure even the most well-meaning public scientists to create companies, to seek out venture capital. This all sounds a little bit strange these days because now 15 years from uh, from what I'm talking about, from this, well, 20 years on now, um, you know, it's commonplace for genome scientists to sit on the CEO, their CEOs or, or chief scientific officers of companies. It's an, it just seems strange to even be talking about a divide between the private and the public anymore. Lots of ge people, genome scientists working in this space now would argue that if you're going to be relevant, you need to have a company. Um, so, and, and that was, those pressures were present even at, um, the beginning of human genomics, even though we have this story of this, like, good versus evil, the private versus the public, it was never that simple. Um, and through the process of one thing I account in this book is the way in which John Solston 
recounts the way in which this radically changed the uh, the moral economy of of doing work in this domain. Uh, he grew up with this the fabled you know moral economy that um, uh, Rob Kohler talks about in Lord of the Flies. The way the geneticists shared all their you know fly stocks with one another. Um, sharing was an ethos of this community, and human beings were at the center of it. And what Solston describes is a way in which machines moved to the center. And he defends sharing, and 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 and, and but the the side of it that you don't usually hear is the way in which sharing actually worked in the interest of the powerful scientific labs. Um, it also worked in the interest of pharmaceutical companies who wanted the genomic data out in the public because they weren't going to make money off of sequencing DNA. Those pharmaceutical companies weren't in that game. Uh, the, the, the biotech startups were in that game. game. What the pharmaceutical companies wanted was access to the genomic information so they could develop drugs. And so although we hear this thing about how sharing serves the public interest, sharing was driven in many cases by private pressure. So information as a you know liberal democratic democratizing force um, reaches its limit in this case and and it's and and that's where i start the book and that's where i open up the um, deeper problems of um, justice uh, whether or not in this case the, in, the, in the chapter two that you're talking about the opening kind of empirical case the deep inequalities that genomics introduced into the life sciences there were those there were the haves and the have-nots. There were those who had the, the, the power to do the sequencing. At the end of the day, only two labs in the entire world did almost all the sequencing of the Even Genome Project, even though 20 labs were listed um, on the paper. And that's because the amount of resources you needed to do the sequencing was only within the grasp of a few uh, of folks. So that opens up, you know, I take an iconic story uh, it's supposed to be good versus evil um, and complexify it and, and, and begin to talk about the dynamics that I'll follow um, throughout the book that, that demonstrate the limits of these liberal democratic ways of thinking and the need to develop a frame that uh, raises questions, fundamental questions of justice. And uh, including in your, in your second chapter here, I feel like there's, there's this theme that uh, kind of goes throughout it, which is this idea early on of, wow, we have this genome project going on. It's, you know, we're going to learn so much. We're going to gain so much from it. And as we see kind of time and time again, the investment doesn't really come out, right, as intended. Um, and so and so that, that seems to be a big part of, of what you're discussing as well. And and then, and then this and then this drive to to collect more data since uh, really to make sense and to gain value from the genome will require uh, you know more information to and so um, in the third chapter uh, you start to discuss some of the, some of these issues not just around you know um, attaining more more data but also in terms of inclusion. And uh, here we have, we have another kind of uh, historical case uh, talking about the Tuskegee experiment, um, notorious experiment, as well as how it relates to um, like the Human Genome Diversity Project a bit there. So if you could um, discuss a little bit of that, please. Yeah, um, you know, on the meaning problem issue, that's actually a good point that you raise. You know, at one central question of the book is we've got all this data, but what does it mean? Um, so the meaning issue and the, and the meaning issue to solve the meaning problem uh, required getting into the, the political, social, uh, some of these political social struggles that I've been, that I've been talking about. Um, so, and, and interestingly, it, Craig Venner early on uh, made the argument, we shouldn't just sequence all this data and, without stopping to figure out how to interpret it. He lost that argument. That decision was consequential. One of my main arguments is that we genomics built an infrastructure that's extremely good at producing data, but is not built to interpret. And that is the problem we're dealing with now, um, is that we, we don't have 
the infrastructures needed, which are infrastructures that would require the technical savvy of this field of genomics to be integrated with deep social and political thinking because to do the interpretation, you can't just do it with machines with machines alone. So anyway, that's as an aside, but that's one of the big issues in the book. And the other thing that happened after the, the sequencing of the human genome is that there was a big problem, which is the human genome sequenced one human genome. You can't make sense of a human genome with only one genome. The human genome itself means very little. The, se- the three billion nucleotides, A, A, G, C, G, A, I mean, what does that mean? The way that you make sense of that, one strategy to begin to do that is to compare it to other genomes. So this human being has an A at chromosome one, uh, this part of chromosome one, but person B has a T there. Well, you can say, oh, there's a difference. What does it mean? So genome scientists always knew that in order to make sense of this thing, they were going to need genomes from thousands, millions of people. And the Human Genome Diversity Project was about, you know, you know, those scientists said, you can't just have a human genome project and only sequence one human genome. Biology has always been about the diversity of life. You need to fund the Human Genome Diversity Project. But that became extremely controversial, the diversity project. So as the genome project came to a close, the leaders at NIH knew they were facing a very difficult problem, which is for years they had said, we're just going to bracket the diversity problem. You know, we're just going to sequence this. It's a, it's a solvable technical problem. Sequence this 3 billion nucleotides. We'll get to the problem of how we're going to get the genomes in order to do the work on diversity when we get there. Well, they get there and they are faced with a huge, uh, you know, conundrum, which is how are you going to do this? And the first thing they said was, well, we're not going to go around the world and collect DNA because we learned our lesson from the diversity project. We're not going to be those terrible colonial, colonial actors who go around and plunder the DNA of other, of other peoples. We're going to stay in the United States. And they, though, needed DNA from diverse people, and particularly they wanted DNA of people of African descent because the theory, the out-of-Africa theory, is that human beings evolved first in Africa, and so the most diversity present in human beings is people of African descent because that's where we evolved from. And so they really wanted people of African descent. And, and this is where the idea, and, and, there's, and then there's one other thing, which is in the middle of the 1990s, um, a geneticist from Sierra Leone, who was a researcher at Tuskegee, Tuskegee University, and contacted folks at the NIH and said, hey, let's have a, the first ethical, legal, social implications um, meeting on a historically black college here in Tuskegee. Let's if, if the genomics is really, as you say, going to be the Apollo, the moonshot of the life sciences, then African-Americans should be a part of it and should benefit, and you should come to Tuskegee to talk about that. So all these things are converging at once. The, the folks at NIH, they, they want samples from people of African origin. There's a Tuskegee Institute Historically Black College in the Black Belt there's a researcher there that's calling them to all come down to Tuskegee to talk about genomics. And out of this comes the idea, and there's a much more complicated story here, and I should say that this, was, this chapter in the book took 15 years to write. Um, it's a very complicated story, as you can imagine. You have the history of the Tuskegee uh, mm-hmm. syphilis experiments, um, uh, and the apology made by had just been made by Bill Clinton in 1998, and as part of the reparations for the Tuskegee uh, experiments, which as I don't know if all the listeners will know, but this is a uh, project. This is a research project funded by the U.S. government that ran from 1932 to 1972 that studied African Americans, um, uh, 400 African American. 
men who had syphilis, but never told them that they were being studied um, because they had syphilis. And nor did they receive treatment um, once penicillin became the standard of care. It's a notorious uh, treating uh, African-Americans like guinea pigs um, case. It's part of where all of violations around human subject research comes from, the Belmont Report. It's enormously important. It's one of the reasons why African-Americans are very resistant still to participating in biomedical research. So as reparations for that um, experiment, money was being given to build an, uh, an ethics, bioethics institute at Tuskegee. So at the, you, it's an amazing moment where you have money coming to Tuskegee to create a national center of bioethics. At the same time, you have money coming from NIH to start a genome sequencing center there. All of these histories collide. All of these desires about the future and, and, and how the future can be this bright, anti-racist, uh, scientific, rational future converge on Tuskegee, Alabama at the turn of the millennium. And that chapter is about what happens. Um, and I'm not sure if you want me to <laughs> um, talk about that, but the short story is that the idea that what we're going to do is just include African-Americans in genomics did not work. Um, once again, my, my, my argument is that these liberal ideas are not good enough to deal with the deeper problems of justice that underlie um, uh, uh, much of the many of the issues in genomics. So, when researchers went out, um, African American researchers went out to try to ask people in Macon County, which is where Tuskegee is, if they wanted to contribute their DNA um, to genomics. The story that I was told over and over again was. A few months ago, the Episcopal Church fell down on a Saturday. What if it had fallen down on a Sunday? There's no hospital in this town. People would be dead by the time they had gotten there. What good is this high-tech genomics research when we don't have basic health care? A fundamental question of justice, access to uh, health, and the, just the basic health care. Um, how can you do high-tech science when when that's not being provided. And that was a theme that I heard constantly over the course of the decade that I do, did this work. And oftentimes genome scientists would say to me, I know those are important problems, but that's not my problem. And that's not, they wouldn't say it's not my problem. They said, this is not our area. We don't know how to fix that. We don't know how to address these very important issues that you're, you're bringing up. And when the Belmont report was written, which in response to Tuskegee, there were three principles in it. One was important consent. One was do no harm and do, do good. And the final one was justice. And Patricia King, who uh, sat on that panel, who wrote that uh, Belmont report, in her oral history, an African-American legal scholar, um, she said, I regret we were great at informed consent. We did a lot with informed consent. Not bad with do, do no harm and do good. But I regret that we did nothing with justice. And that third principle of justice is what Tuskegee needed to deal with the issues that were presented to it, with, to it in the new millennium when genomics came to town. Um, informed consent, which had been the, the, the response to Tuskegee, which makes sense. You know, These men were not informed that they were being studied for Tuskegee. We will forever on inform human beings about research being done on them. A huge win. But when it came to collecting DNA from African Americans, informed consent was not enough. The problem was the lack of access to health care, which, which was the issue, issue actually with the Tuskegee syphilis experiments as well. The reason why researchers at Tuskegee Institute back in 1931 were mm -hmm. open to the public health service coming was a Partly, and this is a story that Susan Riverby has told uh, wonderfully in her books about uh, Tuskegee, because it represented a chance to get resources coming to the university. And those issues were never dealt with, and they repeated themselves um, 70 years later. Yeah, and in terms of, in terms of uh, the, the story here, it's, it's interesting that again and again you have these well-intentioned scientists that, that go in and they, and they try to help and then 
uh, behold, there's, there's structural issues going on. Um, and, and, uh, and so they, they, they feel kind of caught in a bind there. Um, but to, just to move on here, since we only have so much time, um, in terms of chapter four, we get into the hat map, right? So this, this is, uh, another kind of, uh, uh, racialized issue that comes up. Um, but they, they go about it a, a bit of a different way. Um, but you do get into issues in regards to, um, you know, what Jasnov calls bioconstitutionalism and, and citizenship in general. So if you could speak on that. Yeah, so the HAP map, um, the International Haplotype Map, was the National Institutes of Health's response to how are we going to get diverse genomes after the Tuskegee, uh, the, you know, quickly the effort to sequence in the U.S. is critiqued. And um, Japan, the leaders of genomics in Japan, for example, say, there's no way that we're going to do the next generation of genome sequencing and have United, the United States, have it all be done based on samples from the United States. So there was this move to globalize this next generation, quote unquote, of genome maps. And that is the International Haplotype Map Project. Um, it's, you know, I don't know how many of our listeners are going to know what a haplotype map is. And that's part of the point. They actually were picked a, a title that would be harder to critique. You know, Human Genome Diversity Project, people came after it. They knew what it was. But International Haplotype Map Project doesn't sound like anything you should be concerned about. Anyway, but the but the issues um, but the issues remained. Uh, they were very concerned. That the National Institutes of Health, actually, to their real credit, worked very hard at trying to address the problems raised by the diversity project. Not going in and just taking deal and without you know really giving them a role in how that was going to happen. They put millions of dollars and lots of time and thought and energy into how are we going to go around the world, collect DNA from people and do it in a manner that empowers those people, that gives them a say over how their DNA is going to be labeled. Because one of the big issues was who are we taking DNA from when we, you know, go to these different parts of the world? Are we going to say this is African DNA? That sounds like race. What, what, are we going to say this is um, from 90 people in Ibadan, Nigeria? Well, that sounds like a completely meaningless group of people. Like, why would we, you know, why did we spend millions of dollars just to know something about 90 people from Ibadan, Nigeria? So the problem of how to come up with the correct category for how to name and represent the DNA that they were collecting became a huge issue. And that's something I go into in great depth in this chapter. All the craziness around representational politics. And the NIH said, you know, originally, we're just going to give power back to the people. The people we collect from DNA and from, they're going to tell us what we're going to put on those vials. You know, they're going to tell us what labels to use. Self-identification, grand tradition in the U.S. since, you know, part of the civil rights era um, comes to genomics. Well, again, this is one of those cases where that sounded great, but it didn't work out in practice. Scientists were quite upset about this. Many of them resisted. You know, a group in Southern Europe came back and said, we want to be called the traditionally red. Red for communists, red for blood, and red for wine from our region. And you know, the, the, the scientists, uh, the folks at NIH said, no, we're not going to have DNA. You know, we're not going to write nature papers about the traditionally red. <laughs> um, so the problem was that there was a too, in this case, one of my main arguments in this chapter is there was a too simplistic understanding of the relationship between science and, and politics and what democracy would mean. It was very much of a democracy where the researchers uh, kind of treated it like, okay, let's take this democratic, you know, tool off the shelf, represent this, you know, give people the power to name themselves. Um, we're going to put the political issues over here with the p people. They can do all the political, deal with all the political problems around representation, and then we'll get on with our science. But the problem is that the two things were entwined. Um, and the, a little democratic frame did not give them a way for thinking about that problem. And that's what led to the dilemmas around the HAP map. So that's, that's a short story of a very complicated uh, story. That's kind of a crazy story over... You know, who's going to represent the, the genome uh, 
and and it, it is kind of amazing this whole thing about well it's not going to be the U.S. and Japan comes in and says we're going to be involved and then China says well there's no way that you know that Japan is going to represent quote unquote Asia and then um, there was a whole issue of whether or not China could be involved at all because of the human rights issues I mean it's a, it's a really interesting uh, story that unfolds yes absolutely. Um... And this this story also um, includes other countries doing their own kind of genome projects, including um, Scotland, uh, which which you also compare to to Iceland. Um, so if if you could speak about a bit about the uh, the the Scotland pro- the GS project, yeah, yeah, that was actually one of my favorite um, uh, bits of fieldwork in this book. Maybe my most favorite fieldwork was the was the work in Scotland. Um, this, this was, of all the efforts I looked at, the one that I was most inspired by. This is where science studies uh, scholars got involved um, and to try to shape uh, the direction of genomics in Scotland. And it was a really interesting moment for Scotland because it was at a moment where it was devolving and it, it's parliament. It, it had voted in 1998 to have, uh, which opened in 1999. And, uh, so it was becoming a, its own, having its own governance structure, and uh, the new the new government in Scotland knew it needed new economic resources. Um, you know, if you're going to be your own nation, if you're going to devolve, you need to have um, money to to do things like fund embassies around the world, etc. And so they were looking for new sources of revenue, and they saw gen- genomics as this as this opportunity. And also, uh, Scotland has always been a leader in medical genetics, um, and it's and it's also been known as "quote unquote" the sick man of Europe. The high rates of, of heart disease, um, a mental disease, uh, and uh, and so it was framed as genomics as a win-win. It would help the health of the Scottish people. It would develop the wealth of the Scottish people, and so a proposal was put forward to to collect the the blood, DNA, urine, and data of 50,000 Scottish people. And um, science studies, and I guess the other uh, important point here is this was happening right in the wake of Iceland doing this. And Iceland became international news, kind of like the diversity project, for not a good reason, which is Iceland had the similar idea. We're going to sequence all of our all of our citizens actually, and and link the DNA with their health records and genealogical records, and it became an international story of oh, and there was a company involved here too, um, decode of a nation selling off its genome, and this became a, a international bioethical, uh, you know, I won't call it a scandal, but certainly a, a big controversy, and. Scotland really wanted to avoid this. You know, it wanted to frame itself as not Iceland. As in in in, in Iceland, the people were were um, not asked whether or not they wanted to participate. They had the right to opt out, but not to opt in. In Scotland, there was a big emphasis on this is going to be of and for and by the people of Scotland. It's there was uh, a lot of how to consult with the Scottish people. Um, science studies scholars got involved with this. Um, and they like cited uh, 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 David Hume, liberal democratic thinkers. It's very very thoughtful project about how to do this, and and it was a very inspiring um, effort. And I love this story. It 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 really does demonstrate, you know, a lot of the dynamics of what I'm talking about in post genomics. Um, you know, when I when Scotland first. The government first decides to invest in genomics. is It's the high water mark for genomics. There's a huge amount of excitement. There's a lot of money going into it. Pharmaceutical companies are keen. A pharmaceutical company backs Generation Scotland. Then there's a crash in the value of genomics right at the same time that there's a crash in the the world. There's a world financial crisis. The whole you know idea that we're going to be able to quickly find genetic variants that correlate with um, drug drug targets or that correlate with whether or not drugs work for people quickly falls apart. Um, all of these genome-wide association studies do not um, pan out the way people had hoped. Um, and so right, so Scotland invests right at the wrong time. <laughs> and 
the, the value of genomics crashes and they've collected all this DNA from, you know, 25,000. At the end of the day, it was only 25,000 Scottish people. And when they first started doing this project, they thought the ethical problems were going to be, how do we fairly distribute the wealth, you know, that, that comes from all of this? They were imagining, you know, corporations making lots of money. At the end of the day, their ethical problems were how to keep the, whole, the resource alive in the first place. You know, how are you going to pay for liquid nitrogen to keep the, the DNA we've collected from the people of Scotland alive? And also, we told the Scottish people that we were, we were not going to send their DNA out of the country. Scottish researchers would study Scottish DNA. But after the fall in value of, 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 of DNA and genomics, the way to make value out of DNA was at greater and greater depths which required the, the, the capacity, these sequencing machines that, the, that were not available in Scotland, that existed um, in Oxford in England or in Palo Alto in California. And so a big question became, you know, in, in the case of can we send the DNA to, to Oxford where the latest machines were, you know, what, what is the country, who are the people if the if the promise of the Scottish government was we're not going to send this DNA out of the country, the question was what's the country? Is is Scotland part of the United Kingdom or not? And so it, the story raises really interesting questions about um, uh, how geno- the the notion of a nation is forming along with the notion of a genome um, and. Uh, the way in which these more fundamental questions about who the people are um, was central to the problem of making value out of the DNA. So that's, again, a short version of a very long story, but it's a fascinating tale of what happened there in Scotland. Yeah, I have to say that that was, this is probably my my favorite chapter out of the book is just, there's just so much going on there. Um, But uh, we are, a little bit short on time here, so I wanted to um, see if we could just, you know, quickly talk about chapter six and then uh, and then chapter seven. Um, so with chapter six, um, genomics for the ninety eight percent. This is a chapter that primarily uh, discusses twenty three and Me, um, as well as some of the the issues as you mentioned. Um, and this, about the second chapter, which would be, you know, this, this issue of, of so-called uh, um, corporate science or critiques of corporate science um, and this issue of personal genomics, which we see in the uh, seventh chapter as well. Um, so if you could just speak a little bit about each of those. Yeah. So the 23 Me chapter is the one that's generated in a way the most, um, you know, the people that people that who've read it um, they don't, they don't expect the story I tell in that chapter and, and maybe I'll, you know, leave it you know, the, the listeners to get them to, to, to pour into that chapter. I think they're expecting a, you know, a full on critique of 23andMe. You know, and, but one thing I say, even though in the review of the book by innate, by in nature, they accuse me of, of, uh, you know, putting forward a corporate corruption of science story the only time I use corporate corruption of science in the book is to say we need to move beyond that frame. 23andMe, I, I argue, uh, was able to move into that space because of the, of the vacuum created by the Human Genome Project around the question of meaning. Uh, the, big, the big question that people care about is, you know, they don't want just to have their AGs, Cs, and Ts on a, you know, on a certificate. They want to know what it means. And to do that, it's very expensive. You, uh, that's the expensive part of this. You need, you need trained people who know how to read scientific literature, who know how to, uh, deal with the complex questions of interpretation and, uh, 23 me moved into that space and was able to mobilize the, the capital of Google, they, you know, Anne Wojcicki, um, who was married to Sergio Brin, the founder of Google, uh, founded that company along with Linda Avey had that kind of power, even though the 23andMe adamantly, you know, when I interviewed folks there, they adamantly denied any connection to, to uh, I think they were trying to make the separation between Google and 23andMe. But at the end of the day, I think investors felt confident about it because it was backed by, you know, in, at least through a marriage relationship to, to Google. So they had a lot of resources and they were able to um, uh, hire people early on. 
to do the, the curation. And this chapter is a lot about um, the problem of knowledge uh, in genomics, the problems that 23andMe faced interpreting any of it. Um, and so it's not a corporate corruption of science stories so much as, as I'm trying to make the point, as well as public entities face this fundamental problem of how do we make sense of what any of this means and how difficult it is to do that. And the, the, the chapter goes into the early efforts that the companies made to try to get along with one another. There were these journalists who early on like uh, went to 23andMe and then went to Navigenics, another uh, personal genetics company, went to Decode Genomics, another which came out of the Iceland case. And they said, hey, you know, we're getting different results. You know, there's this, this is a sham, you know, and, and the companies responded and said, we're getting different results because we have different ideas about how to interpret this stuff. That doesn't mean that it's wrong. It just gives you a sense of how complex this area is. So that's part of the 23andMe story. Um, the, the, the last story about the, the, um, personal gene or the, uh, the, um, yeah, the personal genome project, which is George Church at Harvard's effort uh, to sequence and put out in the public domain human genomes, you know, without, without any restrictions, uh, is a story that comes back to the problem of the open, of putting data out into the open, um, and what happened when uh, uh, volunteers um, from the public s signed up to George Church's effort and uh, and and said, "Hey, I'm I'm willing to be uh, uh, a guinea pig in this domain. Uh, I believe in this area of science. I'm willing to have my DNA out there." Um, and what ha and what happened, and the complexities of openness. And one of my arguments there is that there's no open in, open without closures. Um, there isn't. There are the the complexities of putting your DNA. In the open, there's all different types of ways of being. There isn't just put it all out there. Not even the Personal Genome Project could do that. They faced limits. Um, they couldn't put all the data out there, so they had to make choices about what they were going to put in the, in the public domain. And the problem of interpretation. Well, you put your DNA out into the public domain and have access to it. Would you be able to interpret it? How are you possibly going to be able to do that? So I know that we don't have a huge amount of time, so I can't really go into the complexities of that chapter. Um, but it sort of begins where it ends. So at the beginning of the decade, the, the idea of how we make the genome democratic was put it in the open. You know, don't let Craig Venner, um, uh, you know, patent it. And at the end of the decade, we loop back to the openness idea. All the other liberal democratic ideas don't work out. We come back to the idea of the open. And one of my one of my ways that I begin to end the book is by is by saying that you know where we're left with in terms of democracy in this domain, and where I think we're left with more generally in society right now is with the idea that you know the one remaining liberal democratic idea that many people can get behind is this idea that things should be out in the open, but the problem is is that that notion serves quite large interests like uh, you know social media companies quite you know, notoriously want you to put stuff out in the open. Um, so anyway, uh, it's a quick, quick version of those last two chapters. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then, and then in, in actually the uh, chapter eight and epilogue, you, you go into some of your uh, interpretation, some of your, you know, ideas around how to, how to move forward in the, in this post genomic condition. Um, did you have any last words to say about uh, about any of that? Yeah, so the the last chapter is a meditation on um, I actually end where where I lived throughout the whole uh, book in San Francisco. And in San Francisco, there's been a huge investment in biotech in one uh, area of the city that used to be where the uh, shipyards were. There's now like fifty new gleaming buildings and six million new square feet of biotech and and the inequalities there are quite ex are quite um visible and extreme so on there's this one street in san francisco third street and the, and the final chapter is called life on third um, that i biked up and down throughout the course of writing this uh book and i began to notice that there was a huge discrepancy um 
within five minutes of biking on, on, you know, I would start out, I'd be in this kind of biotech Disneyland um, where I could buy a really nice cup of coffee and get a craft beer and go to a, you know, a, a locally sourced restaurant um, and all of these amazing um, biotech buildings designed by Starkitects. It's really anybody who's visiting San Francisco, I recommend checking this out. Um, and then within five minutes, I am in the poorest region of the, of, of the city, historically the dumping ground of the city, where nuclear waste is, where the ships that came back from uh, the you know, had carried the atomic bombs for World War II had been cleaned. It's a super fun site now. Has the highest um, rates of cancer, asthma um, in all of the state. Um, it's a uh, an area of extreme poverty. And one day I went into my gym on Third Street in the fancy buildings, what I call the Gattaca Gym, because it looks like the building in Gattaca. And I, I heard a young African-American lifeguard say, you know, I was walking into work today. I, came, I went to the 16th Emission BART stop, and I walked through poverty and drug use and, and housing. Anyone who's been in San Francisco, homelessness, anyone who's been in San Francisco recently knows a huge problem around homelessness. And I get to this gleaming building what is all the, the, this, this medical research being done here? Who was benefiting from it? And that question is the question that Third Street poses. And that deep question around how we address inequality, how we address these more fundamental questions of injustice, that most of the time, genomics and biotech get a pass on. It's so almost like, you know, we recognize it in every other area, but when it comes to biomedical research, we say we're saving children and it's, my argument is it's not okay. In this domain, these questions of justice, which are the questions of our times, must also be addressed. And how do we transform genomics with so many well-meaning people and so many people like myself who went into it early on caring about the deeper questions about the human condition, about making the world a better place? How do we transform this field so that it better achieves those aspirations that are contained within the people who are attempting to do it, to, to do genomics? So the book, the last chapter is a meditation on how that could happen. Um, and the epilogue um, is as well. You know, just a, a few little notes. I, I do argue that we ought to pick up on that third principle of justice in the Belmont Report. Uh, it's hard to imagine how this would happen in a Trump administration. I was writing this when Obama was still president and when I, when I, when I thought that perhaps uh, Trump would not be elected. Now it's hard to imagine a national commission to look at justice you know, now. Um, but that was at the time what I had recommended, which, which is actually an interesting note. You know, if we have more time, we could talk about like how the conditions of doing this work um, changed. Uh, you know, not, not like, you know, completely, but certainly for many of us, the, 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 the trouble of, you know, in a post-truth, you know, um, uh, moment, uh, a moment of the Trump presidency, how we do critique and how we do work has, has uh, been faced with some challenges. And, um, you know, some of the things I say in the conclusion, I might, I, I think fundamentally what I say is true. Um, you know, the kinds of things that need to happen I'm less clear about now how they could happen, although I'm starting to begin to have now ideas about how to do that. I actually think that the, that the um, I don't know, the silver lining in all of this is that people on the ground, more people on the ground are taking it in their own hands to try to make a difference. And so there's lots of little efforts to try to address these big issues. We maybe cannot look to our national government to do that. Those issues will be devolved down to uh, a more uh, a local level. So anyway, those are some, some, uh, some thoughts, both about the conclusion and where I would take it now. Yeah. Did you want to say a bit about what you're working on now? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, I, okay. I will, um, either I'm working on a bunch of stuff and, 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 
and one thing I'm working on is I'm turning, returning back to my work on race and genomics in the light of the Trump presidency and the light of the appropriation of, of, um, genomics by the alt-right, which other folks are, are, are doing as well. Um, uh, so and there's, there was just that, as you mentioned, the David Reich, um, uh, commentary in the New York times, a lot of my time has been spent thinking in, in recent weeks about how to respond to that. I'm in Germany right now where there's a, uh, a lot of pressure now in the wake of the quote unquote immigrant crisis to undo a longstanding, uh, national law, um, which has prohibited the, uh, attachment of racial categories to DNA, and that's now being challenged. Um, so I'm actually on a practical level, again, going back to my, um, how do we make a better genomics by addressing these various issues and, um, writing on and advising and helping to frame how we respond to these contemporary, um, uh, real problems. I mean, one of the things about genomics is it's no longer theoretical. It's, it's, it's playing out, it's having impacts, it's, it's affecting geopolitical um, affairs. So that's one thing I'm doing. But the other thing I'm doing that's related to what I was saying about the Trump presidency is that I'm actually, uh, I'm from Kansas, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually doing a project where I'm biking across Kansas talking to ranchers about how to know and care for the prairie. Um, and what I'm interested in there is American notions of freedom, uh, relationships to, as mediated through relationships to the land, and where contestations over uh, uh, knowledge about the environment uh, is a big issue, um, and where race is a central issue, notions of whiteness, uh, and uh, doing it through the prairie. So I'm, I'm shifting from genomes to prairies and on the back of a bike. So... Uh, that's what I'm doing now. That's amazing. Um, well, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, so just, just to wrap up here, I, I wanted to, um, first of all, thank you for joining us. And then, um, I just wanted to, again, uh, suggest to the audience, they, they pick up this wonderful book, the post-genomic condition, um, ethics, justice and knowledge after the genome published last year. Thanks again, Ginny. Thank you very much, Chad. I really enjoyed it.